So this morning is a bit of a departure because I'm not actually talking about worship, which is, may come as a surprise to some of you because it's kind of my lifeblood. Um, but my title today is Living from a Place of Royalty. And I think as we've journeyed as a church over the past five or six years, we've kind of hit on the issue of identity many, many times. And I think the fact that we keep coming back to it is an indication of just how important it is that we nail this issue. Knowing who we are is absolutely fundamental to everything that we do. All the things that we're shooting for as a family come out of this foundation. It defines how we worship. It defines how we do relationships. And it defines how we interact with the world out there as well. So I want to spend a bit of time today just talking about our royal identity. Now, I should say at this point as well, I think very often for many of us, our past, our British culture, and sadly even our church lives in, in some ways will perhaps have shaped us in such a way that we don't truly appreciate who we are and the awesomeness that resides within us. So... I want to begin just by thinking about, actually, what are our royal credentials? Why, why do we even think that we're, we can live from this place of royalty? And then we'll move on and look at what that actually means uh, for us in our everyday lives. So our royal credentials. So let's start in some scriptures, because that's always a good place to start. So... Revelation 17 says this, verse 14. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them. That's Jesus. Because he is the Lord of lords, King of kings. And with him will be called, his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Jesus is King of kings. He is our royal, uh, royal king. And then Hebrews 1 Verse 8 says, but about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and therefore God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Again, here we see Jesus, the son, seated on a throne, a throne that's established and going to last forever. And then in Hebrews 1, again, verse 13, and it says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So these verses, and there are many others, you could go to many places in Scripture, that tell us that God, and particularly Jesus, is king over all kings, both on the earth and in the heavenly realms. His rule has been established. It says in the verse we read, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. It's not something that's fly by night. It's something that's never going to end. So Jesus is this king on a throne, ruling over the heavenlies and the earthly realms as well. So what about us? How do we relate to Jesus? Because that is key, really, to our um, understanding, if you like, of this whole, whole thing. So Ephesians 2 verse 19 tells us this. Consequently... You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Hebrews 2 verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything 
exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters of this king in heaven. Then John 15, verse 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. So not only are we family, but we're friends. And then 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So our royalty comes from our relationship to Jesus. We need to get this one nailed. We need to just imbibe this into our beings. In Romans 8, 17, it tells us, if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are inheritors of Christ's inheritance. Hoo-hoo. That's quite something. And we're seated in heavenly places, it tells us in Ephesians 2.8. He's raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms. This is a perspective that we need just to break in on us. It's a perspective that we need uh, just to fill our beings. And when we gain this perspective, we're going to be radically changed. Suddenly, we'll turn from being timid, apologetic, and powerless. And we'll become bold, confident, and powerful in him. So, we're royalty. So, what are the attributes of royalty? What is it that kind of um, makes it stand out? So, we're going to consider five characteristics of people who live from this place of royalty. Now, I've got these five suggestions, but... This list is probably by no means exhaustive. And I'd, re- I'd really encourage you just to ask the Father, what are the attributes that he's put within you? I think these are all here, but there are many others as well. And it's interesting when you look at our natural royal family, whatever you think of monarchy and all the rest of it, you see that these, these guys are trained from a young age for this office, if you like. They're trained from a young age to serve a nation. And there's a very powerful picture in there um, for us. So let's consider these attributes. The first of these is that we're born for greatness. Royal people are born for greatness. Now, I have to say, I think the Western society and the Western church as well have had a lot to answer for in robbing us of this attribute. If you watch small children play, what you'll see is that actually there's something in them that wants to be the best, that wants to be the greatness. As they role play among themselves, you know, they want to be the king, they want to be the princess, the superman or, or wonder woman, whatever. They have these wild dreams and unchained expectations of how amazing they are going to be. Sadly, when you look at Um, them as they grow up and many as they get into teenage years and beyond somewhere along the way that um, kind of 
inbuilt sense of greatness has been kind of squashed and beaten out of them. Our societal values are so much about equality that we, I think we've tended to bring people to the lowest common denominator. There's this thing is it called the tall poppy syndrome. You know, people who stand out and excel kind of often being the, um, I guess, the butt of criticism and goodness knows what else. But actually, there's no place for that in church. God wants to elevate each one of us to live to our full potential. He's, he's not about squashing us down to some common denominator. But every one of us has a glorious potential in him. And it's true, in, we see this in Scripture as well. You look at the disciples. They spent time with Jesus. And when you spend time with Jesus, actually, you start to realize just who you are. And in Mark 9, as I think it is, yeah, there are two different passages. Both, both tell us much the same thing, but I'll read them both to you. Mark 9, it says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What are you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. <laughs> Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the last and the servant of all. And in Matthew 20, we see similar story. And now James and John's mums get involved as well. Um, mums are a bit like that sometimes. Uh, uh, want the best for their kids, which is a great thing. Um, Matthew 20, verse 20. And the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with them and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered, probably not quite knowing. Um, <laughs> and Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard about this, so the rest of them eavesdropping and were not too happy, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. So being around Jesus brought out this sense of, I'm amazing in the disciples. We can do some awesome stuff. We can cast out demons. We can heal the sick. Look out, world. Here we come. Uh, but what I want us to take from these passages is that Jesus didn't tell them off for wanting to be great. If you want to be great, he says. But then what he does is he shows them a different model of greatness. Something that looks a lot different to the world's idea of greatness. Our greatness is measured in a different currency. And it's about how we show honor to one another. That is what displays our greatness. We need to recover our childlike sense of wonder at how awesome God has made us. In Psalm 139, it tells us that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. 
And in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're his workmanship. Another translation of that is masterpiece. God has made us in his image. And every time we demean who we are, we demean God's image as well. We need to learn um, just to uh, know and accept who we are in him. And sadly, the church, I think particularly, I think I've observed here in Scotland and in the UK, has squashed this sense of awe at who God has made us out of us in the name of humility. There's a lie that's alive in the minds of many Christians that keeps us from living out our destiny. And this lie is that any recognition of our strength or our goodness is pride in some way. And that the only way to deal with this is to demean ourselves. But we need to be clear that although we fell we fell short of God's glory what Jesus did at the cross was to restore us the fallen us is dead buried crucified with Christ and we've been raised up into glory it says we're being transformed from glory to glory we're no longer sinners we are saints But if we have the wrong view of who we are, we're going to fall short of the amazing call on our lives, both personally and corporately, the call of the church in this city and in this nation. And if we deny what God has made us, we're denying the power of the resurrection. We're not nobodies. We're not, it's just a little old me. We are royal sons and daughters, created for glory, with good works, prepared in advance for us to step into. We're born for greatness, and God doesn't remind us of our smallness, but rather calls out our royal destiny. I love the story of Gideon. There's this guy, he's hidden away. Israel are being marauded by... uh, Is it the Moabites? The Midianites, that's right. Um, And he's hidden away in a wine press, threshing out the wheat so that this marauding people coming in wouldn't come away, come and steal the food and leave them with nothing to sustain them. And then this angel of the Lord appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. (laughs) There he is, hiding away, fearful, in a wine press. But what God does is he calls out who he's made us to be. Sometimes it doesn't look like our current circumstances. Very often doesn't, I can assure you. But God sees who he's made us to be. So I love Gideon's response. He says, pardon me, Lord. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors were told about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. But the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan's the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. 
But the Lord answers, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So as the angel spoke the truth of who he was over him, Gideon was able to step out and to step into his destiny as Israel's deliverer. And again, we just see God's hand of deliverance comes in a way that kind of defies human logic. So we're not trying to promote pride, arrogance, brashness, all these things. But we do need to recover the true meaning of humility. This isn't a self-centered doctrine. Humility is actually thinking, not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. So it's not about demeaning ourselves, but it's giving others honor. True humility, Chris Vallotton says, is grown out of an awareness of God's greatness, grows in a heart full of gratitude, and matures in the awe of his passionate love for us. The grace of God humbles a man without degrading him and exalts a man without inflating him. So this this idea of humility um, is not about self-deprecation, but it's actually about a recognition of who I am and who you are as well. So that's our first attribute. We're born for greatness. The second attribute, and I've kind of already alluded to this, is that we're born to honor. Now, honor is a virtue that I think has been, by and large, lost from our nation. Politicians are at one another's throats. The generations are at odds with one another. Relationships sour all too easily and degenerate into mudslinging and often separation. But honor is humility in action. And it's one of the most powerful attributes of royal living. It's something that sets a culture um, where we are. Honor means that we value people because they're created in the image of God. We value that they're his creation and his workmanship. What we might find hard is actually this includes everyone, including the people that perhaps we don't agree with or get along comfortably with. Not just our Christian brothers and sisters either, but also everybody that we encounter. We are all God's creation, and there is something of God's eternal purpose in every person on this planet. And that really changes the way that we interact both with each other in the church, but actually how we interact with those in the world as well. So honor is the backdrop for our relationships. And as we're learning to live our lives, honoring one another, we're experiencing a radical change in the way that we do relationship together. Honor nurtures us as well. In the Ten Commandments, there's a command, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you and you live long in the land. Honor is life-giving, not just to the recipient, which is kind of what you'd expect, but also to the giver of honor. And so it's something which really is, is at the center of our recipe for living together. And honor is also central to the way that we do leadership. When we honor others, we recognize their authority and yield to that. Honor is the cornerstone of an empowering culture. 
that eliminates the need for control. I think so many of us have experienced in church life, in business, in work, all these places, controlling leadership. And that's not good. It, it leads to fear. It leads to discouragement. Whereas if we have honoring leadership, then what we create is uh, dignity, sorry, order through dignity, rather than through fear of punishment. Now, we've recently changed the leadership structure here in Hope Church. And that's, this is something that we're learning to live out together. We're learning to honor one another as a team and how we honor you as a congregation. We don't honor the position, but we honor people and the, the gifts that they carry in God. An honor is a two-way thing. We need to remember that true fathers honor their sons and desire to see them prosper and to grow and out, outgrow them. And true sons also honor their fathers in the house and release and empowered by doing so. It's one of these kind of virtuous circles. So as royal sons, we need to learn an attitude of, uh, or cultivate an attitude of honor within us and cultivate an atmosphere of honor around us. As we learn to one another, it will cause us to grow in God and it will cause us corporately to grow in God as well. And honor is generous. It's not something that's kind of grudgingly given. Think of the woman who broke that jar of perfume over Jesus' feet. Here she is, she was entering a man's domain, which was not permissible in those days. Um, but she comes in out of worship and honor of Jesus and smashes an incredibly expensive jar of perfume and puts it over his feet. And the people in the room were quick to judge her. The disciples thought it was a waste. You know, could have sold it and given the money to the poor. But Jesus commended her. And our worship is like this. It's actually giving honor to somebody who needs nothing. Yeah. He deserves praise without a doubt. But he doesn't need praise. But we do it because we place him in such high honor. So honor will affect also how we interact with the world outside. As we see the God in the people that we encounter day to day, then actually that's going to change our whole attitude to how we touch our communities, how we influence this city and this nation. Okay, thirdly, we're born to be part of a covenant family. God's purpose for the church is that it's going to be a beautiful, winsome family. In 1 John, it tells us that by your love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. We're in covenant, agreement together. We're looking out for one another's needs, cheering one another on and living life together. Because this ultimately displays God's heart to the world around us. Families need fathers. We live in one of the most fatherless generations. Fathers absent and orphaned children. But Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. 
And I think Andy's taught us on this before, but an orphan is not somebody who doesn't have a father. We all have a biological father. But an orphan is someone who has no connection with their father. But we have a heavenly father to whom we're connected and with whom we're designed to have intimate relationship. But for some, that correction with connection with father has either never, never truly been established or has become broken, maybe because of shame or guilt that isn't actually ours to carry. We're born into a new covenant where we have direct access to our father, where we're accepted for who we are and not for what we've done. We have this deep longing in our hearts to be connected and father reciprocates that longing as well. So God's purpose for the church is to be a family. We're not an organization. We're not a business. We're not an army. Although you hear all of those things in one guise or another. But primarily we're a family together. So we have a heavenly father. But we also have spiritual fathers as well. Who will invest in their spiritual children to see them grow into healthy and well-adjusted adults. I think that's a, as parents, that's always our, our fervent prayer and hope. And we need spiritual children who will honor the victories that have been won by the fathers on their behalf. And we're not independent, but we're codependent. We need family. We need committed relationships to live this life. We can't do church or kingdom alone. So as we're committed one to another then this is where we'll grow and we'll, uh, we'll prosper and we'll flourish. We're not in this just for what we can get, but also for what we can give and contribute into the family. We're contributors, not consumers. So this is the covenant that we enter into together, that we have each other's back, that we're um, committed to one another. And as we do this, God is going to change the world through it. So we're born for family. Fourthly, we're born for justice. (laughs) So we're called to greatness. We've seen that. And true humility and honor are the key attributes in attaining that greatness. And in turn, these are sustained in an environment characterized by this covenant family love. The father loves his children and hates anything that violates that love. And that... Stuff that violates his love, he calls injustice. Now, as his children, we also carry this hate of injustice. So justice is at the foundation of the kingdom. Psalm 97 verse 1 says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And in the synagogue, Jesus himself picked out these words from Isaiah to characterize his purpose here on earth. This is in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's great 
for us to hang out in that royal place, in the palace, if you like, and enjoy the benefits of being the king's kids. But the more we walk in our royal identity, the more we will find something rising up in us when we encounter injustice. Royal people have a powerful sense of justice in the depths of their souls, which compels them to act in the face of injustice. And historically, you would say that it's been the job of royalty to establish justice in their kingdom. But we need to understand what kingdom justice is. In the world, we tend to see justice, and we see it in our papers all the time, about somebody being punished for their wrongdoing. Somebody getting what's coming to them, what they deserve. But that is not kingdom justice. Kingdom justice is actually about restoration. Kingdom justice is actually about bringing things back, giving back to people what sin has taken from them. The wages of sin are death, it's for sure. It's death in our lives, separation from God. And until we're reconnected with the Father in salvation, then this death is at work in every aspect of our lives. But God's justice includes freedom from sickness, freedom from poverty, healing of relationships, freedom from fear, wholeness in our minds, and so many more things as well. And as royal sons and daughters, it's our joy to partner with Jesus to bring this kind of justice to the earth. We enforce his judgment, which is, you're my son. Yeah, so as royal sons and daughters, it's our privilege to partner with Jesus, bringing this kind of justice to earth. In Micah 6 verse 8, it says, and what does the Lord require of you? And the reply is to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. The reason that many Christians feel powerless in the face of injustice is because they've not really grasped their royal identity and therefore do not know or believe what it is they carry and are able to release in the world. The superior power of the kingdom of God and of the Holy Spirit who lives in us breaks the chains of injustice wherever we are. And then fifthly, We're born to make history. You look in our nation's history, and actually most of the history that's recorded concerns the kings and queens. It concerns the royal people. And as Christians, we're no different. We are at the center of this nation's history. We are at the center of this nation's destiny. And whatever your political leaning, actually... This is Christ's nation first and foremost. And he has a purpose for this nation. And that purpose actually is going to be outworked through us as Christ's people. So I love that song, uh, Martin Smith's song, I'm going to be a history maker in my time. Every one of us can make a difference as we step into our royal identity. Okay, so what are the obstacles then to this royal lifestyle? I would say that mostly what steps us, stops us from stepping into that royal identity is actually stuff from our past, which creates a prison 
that prevents us from stepping into what we, sort of our royal inheritance, if you like. Isaiah 61 prophesies about Jesus proclaiming liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. And there's a difference between captives and prisoners. Prisoners are those who are sent to prison by a judge. And in our Christian lives, if we open the door to tormentors through sin, unforgiveness, jealousy, envy, fear, we can become prisoners to those things. These are things which all cause us to live lesser lives than we were intended for. They cut across these royal attributes that we've discussed today. They lead us to control, they lead us to strive, and live on the basis of performance, not grace. Thankfully, the remedy isn't difficult. Repentance from these things actually causes the judge to issue the release papers. So if there are attitudes in our lives which are stopping us, it's very simple. We just need to turn to him. We need to turn our our wills around and just repent because that releases us immediately into freedom. On the other hand, captives are those who are taken in battle and held as prisoners of war. And rather than being held by sin or wrong attitude, they're held captive by lies that they believe. The devil wants to create a world for us where God's truth is distorted. And his lies are everywhere. They're plausible, but they deny us the power that we are heirs to. His tactic is either to tie us up in the religious, so that we become powerless and ineffective, Paul talks about having a form of religion but denying the power of it. Or the other way, the other tactic, if you like, is to see doubt in our minds as to the character and the promises of God. It's like in the Garden of Eden, uh, the devil said to Eve, did God really say? And when Jesus was tempted, again, Satan came came to him, actually quoting scripture again, but distorting uh, its meaning. But freedom from these lies comes in a revelation of the truth of who God is and who he made us to be. It says in John 8.32, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what are the warning signs? I think there are certain areas in our lives which particularly kind of highlight where perhaps we're not living fully in our royal identity. Chris Vallotton in his book, um, Supernatural Ways of Royalty, talks about princes and paupers. Princes who have grown up in the palace know who they are. Paupers who have not grown up knowing that, but often sometimes maybe coming into a position where um, they can exercise power, And very often that has a a bad effect. So what are the warning signs? I think uh, I've picked out four things here. First is our attitude towards money. Paupers have no confidence in their supply. Even if they've got enough, they're worried it's going to be taken away. If you like, they have what we'd call a poverty mindset. And it stops them from being generous, liberal, and giving. Princes, on the other hand know that their source is the Father. 
They give freely, knowing that they can't outgive God. There's always enough with a prince or a princess. I'm using the term generically. And the other thing is they're not embarrassed by wealth. Now, there's, uh, I guess, a whole lot of discussion about prosperity gospel and all kinds of other things. Um, I think my take on this is that there's nothing wrong with having money. It's what you do with it and how you hold it that is really the issue. Yes. And we, we, in our, one of our declarations, we talk about God uh, providing all our needs so that we can sow generously into the kingdom. Yes. So wealth in itself is not wrong, but sometimes our attitude to it uh, can be. So attitudes towards money can be one kind of warning sign, if you like. How we do relationships as well can be an indicator. Paupers generally find it hard to have transparent relationships, often haunted by shame, and because of that, find it hard to be open and honest. They'll try and cover stuff up to make themselves look better, often fail to accept responsibility, and try and deflect blame. They're often unhealthily competitive to the detriment of others. So these are kind of maybe things that um, can come out of having this uh, kind of uh, pauper mentality. Princes, on the other hand, are comfortable in the grace and love of God. They know his unconditional love, and so they know that their worth is not based on how they perform, but rather on who God made them to be. This means that they're comfortable being open and honest in their interactions with others. The third thing is attitudes to leaders. Paulfers on the whole are not comfortable around leaders and successful people. They're fearful they might be found out and often fearful of judgment as well. And this can express itself in many ways. Uh, I think we see uh, in our society this is very common. Either kind of putting people up on a pedestal, hero worshipping and uh, waiting till they fall off or a sniping attitude that brings people down to their own level. On the other hand, princes are uh, comfortable around great men and women. They're able to relate to them because they know that they too are born for greatness. And they're able to draw goodness from them, and they're able to invest in their vision, knowing that God will prosper them. And then, the fourth area is in self-esteem. Paupers find value in who they know and what they do. Their worth is in their connection and their achievement. So if they don't make it, then often they feel, will feel down, unfulfilled, frustrated or angry. And they feel threatened by those who are more talented or gifted by themselves. And I can really relate to that one as a, having been part of worship teams for, for many years and being surrounded by incredible musicians when actually I'm a fairly average musician. And for a long time, I found it a real, real struggle. But God has been very good and has kind of been dealing with that one in me over, over a few years now. And, but paupers just feel threatened. They don't feel uh, comfortable. Whereas princes find value in whose son they are. They revel in the Father's love and acceptance. They're not defined by a title or an office, and they're stable whatever their circumstances. They live in peace, knowing that they're deeply loved. 
They don't feel threatened by others' successes, but celebrate them. Now, I just want to recommend Chris Vallotton's book, Supernatural Ways of Royalty, here. Now, um, it's actually at the back of it also has a, a great questionnaire, which kind of just tests where you're at in, in this journey. And it really is a journey. The first, uh, first time I did this test, it's, you kind of fill it all in and you get a mark out of 200. 200 is you're 100, you know, completely a prince. Zero is completely a pauper. And I came in, I think, the first time round at about 70 or something like that. Did it again recently and it was in the 120s. And I thought, okay, we're on a journey here. Not there yet, but, um, but it, it's exciting to see what God is just building into our lives. So let's just try and summarize this and draw to a conclusion. So we've established that we have royal credentials. We're sons and daughters of a king. We've seen that we're born for greatness, born for honor, born to live in covenant in a family, born to establish God's liberating justice here on earth and born to make history, changing the face of this city and our nation forever. But as I say, we are on a journey. I'm excited that we have an, an opportunity to raise a generation who know this from the outsets. You know, as parents, we have an amazing privilege, um, an amazing responsibility as well. But to raise our kids to know who they are in Christ right from the outset. When you look in the Bible, examples of guys who are raised like that. Think of Solomon, raised by David in the palace, he went on to lead Israel into its most prosperous time in its whole history. But we also see people who are raised without that royal perspective. Some didn't do so well. Saul, for instance, he came from a farming background. He was anointed to be king, but never really caught the heart of God. And the rest is history. He ends up being replaced by David. On the other hand, there are some who did make it. So Joseph, for instance, was uh, born into a fairly normal family. But as he caught God's heart, he was prospered. He was raised up and became the second most important man in the whole of Egypt. So for many of us, we haven't kind of grown up with this. And so we've become disconnected from our royal heritage. But certainly my story and my journey is that as we respond to Father, as we respond to his word to us, we can actually be reconnected to that royal destiny. We can step back into this royal inheritance and become the awesome world changers that we were intended to be. Let's just pray. Yeah, Father. Yeah, Father, we just thank you. We thank you that we are your children. We thank you that you have created us with good works in mind, with relationship with you in mind, with relationship with your family in mind. Father, right now, I just want to release connection. 
I want to release connection to everyone in this room, to your love, to your Father heart. Oh. Yeah, Father. Father, we just want to open our hearts to you right now. We want to allow you in. We want you to shed your light into our hearts and connect us ever, ever more into you. Yeah, we invite you. Just come. Pinpoint areas where you just want to change us, where you want to uh, break off that pauper mentality. And Father, we invite you just to draw us in, connect us to you. Yeah, Father, and connect us to your family as well. Father, I thank you that you've called us to live together, to walk together, to have one another's back, to live lives committed to seeing each other succeed and grow in you. And Father, I thank you that your purpose is for your church to impact our communities, our city, our nation and beyond. And Holy Spirit, we just invite you, come, catch our hearts again. Stir us. <laughs> Stir us with your beauty and your greatness. Yeah, Father, we just want to lay our lives down for you. We want you to have your way in us that this nation will be changed. Thank you, God. Amen. Amen.